A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. With a massive move to distributed data architecture, it's essential to have access to all of your data wherever it is. A data mesh emphasizes domain-driven data ownership, data as a product, self-service infrastructure, and federated computational governance, giving you faster time to value without needing to transport your data. Starburst allows you to achieve this distributed architecture by allowing you to run SQL queries across distributed data that connect sources, regions, and clouds. For more information on how your team can benefit from a data mesh strategy, check out our data mesh resource center on our website. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Marius Inger, a developer turned consultant who has been working with a few clients on implementing Data Mesh at his extremely Norwegian named company, Nurkafrit AS. We covered three distinct topics evaluating if Data Mesh is a fit for your organization, team structure challenges in Data Mesh or data mesh-like implementations, and just what the heck is federated computational governance. On evaluating if data mesh is right for you, there is the common answer of look at your company size and the number slash complexity of your domain. If you aren't big and don't have complex domains, data mesh is going to be overkill. Where exactly that line starts to cross as to how big and how many domains and how complex they have to be it gets a little fuzzy, but really it's it's kind of measuring what's really causing any data problems you're seeing. And yes, every company wants to get to sharing data, but the centralized data team isn't the bottleneck yet for a lot of companies. Centralization can add a lot of value until it starts to become more hurtful than helpful. And yes, figuring out that point is easier said than done. Centralization of data does fight Conway's law and can become too much cognitive load as well. So kind of looking for those things is, is key. So back to measuring if data mesh is right for you. A key question is, what is the cost of allowing your data processes to fail? The business consequence of failed re- reports has historically not been all that high. 
But if you were driving business decisions, whether that is ML or just crucial day-to-day decisions on your data, data mesh might become more attractive because that cost of your data failing is significantly higher. Marius provided a great list of evaluation questions that can help you really evaluate your current state of, of where you are with data. If you feel comfortable with the answers, data mesh is probably not the solution to your current data woes. So those questions would be, how many data sets are you producing? What is the lead time to creating a new data set? How well are your data sets serving your data needs? How many domains do you have? How complex are those domains? How does the team respond to new data requirements? And how usable in general is your data? So again, there isn't a specific rubric. Bar Moses had provided one in a uh, one of her early posts on data mesh from kind of uh, mid uh, twenty twenty. So if you want to go check that out, there's there's some good things in there around a rubric. But a lot of these questions are really like, what might be causing your your data challenges, and is it really that this centralization is the problem? Second topic we covered was about team structure challenges in data mesh and data mesh-like implementations. In general, it's important to know that implementing data mesh will cause cultural challenges. Marius believes, and you know, this has been reiterated by a lot of folks, developers generally don't want to also have to share their data. It's additional work, so you have to align incentives, which is far easier said than done. The additional cognitive load on developer plates is really crucial to understand and and to empathize with. We need to make sure we are aware of that to not burn them out. This means realigning those incentives again, but also having extra help doing things like grooming the backlog. Extra resources helps, but that is more about tackling the work, not handling the increased cognitive load. And learning about how to do data well is a Pretty big learning task, honestly. Marius recommends giving teams the extra resources, but also reshape the the team and business structure, such as the KPIs to effectively prioritize and shape your general requirements of what you want your teams to do. He also recommends having a stick, not just carrots, or, or teams will try to just opt out. Marius also made the point that if your team isn't well structured already, a chaotic structure will make data mesh extremely difficult at best. You did talk about giving teams autonomy or agency or whatever when you think about how to actually structure your teams. And that, I think that's important as well, is to talk about what each team needs to provide as requirements and give them the resources to actually accomplish that, but kind of give them the ability to choose exactly how they want to do that. Jessatron in her Uh, interview also said a lot of the same things. We finished the conversation on the the fun, quote unquote, topic of federated computational governance. It's a biggie. And when talking about it with developers right now, it feels far too complex. I think when talking about it with anybody, it kind of feels far too complex. We discussed some ways to make it less complex by reducing the friction to developer decisions, but not really adding much to their cognitive load. An example might be providing easy data masking tooling for PII or extensible data APIs so developers can focus on the value add instead of a lot of the nuts and bolts. 
Per Marius, when something like governance is too complex, developers will at best get it wrong and often try to skip it entirely. This is why shadow IT exists everywhere. So spend the time to make it much easier for developers. And developers need to understand the governance team is there as an enabler, not as just a set of rules to adhere to and a confluence page. You know, it's that this is a team that's there to help instead of just put up gates that they have to go through. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very excited for today's episode. I've got uh, Marius Ingerd. Uh, I, I think I, I murdered it again, but yeah, uh, he's, <laughs> he's a, a consultant, uh, kind of has more of a focus as a developer from a, a consulting perspective. And so we're going to talk about a lot of different topics, but a lot of this is helpful in understanding the developer mindset relative to data mesh and data challenges, because so much of where people are running into challenges are around the um, getting developer buy-in and, and explaining this to developers. Why should they care? Why does this matter? Et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think this is going to be very helpful for a lot of folks. And, and uh, Marius is just uh, a, a fun conversationalist as well. So I'm anticipating th this being quite good. Uh, Marius, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself and your background, including the, the company name, which I'm not <laughs> even going to attempt at this point. But Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Marius. I'm uh, 42 years old uh, from Norway, uh, married with children, I think you call it. Uh, the uh, consultancy that I work for is uh, called uh, Knirkefritt. It's a very, very Norwegian name. Uh, we never intended it for an English-speaking audience, so <laughs> I guess that was on our, our fault. Uh, it means something like smooth sailing. Um, and um, as Scott mentioned, I'm basically from the operational side of things. I usually do like uh, like the systems that, are, that become the sources for analysis, right? Uh, so this is my kind of the first, the last one and a half, two years. I've been I've been working with data mesh, so I've been looking at the data side of things, which is really interesting. Uh, and especially when you look, look at things like data mesh, when we're starting to integrate uh, the a lot of the thinking and tooling that's been on the operational side, uh, on the analyst side. Yeah, I think that that whole concept of the self serve platform, people get really bogged down in it, but it really yeah. is just like. I mean, you know, we had the the NAV folks on that that episode actually just uh, released today. We had Bente Bush on uh, a, a few weeks back, and then um, Audin and, and Joran from NAV, and they were just talking about so much of this is just what are the workflows like? What what do developers expect from from yeah. a platform perspective? So, um, so where we kind of wanted to to jump off into is the evaluation of is data mesh a good fit and and we were talking about is data mesh a good fit for this organization for yeah. this challenge 
and and even for this domain, right? They're yeah. they're uh, just had uh, Scott Hawkins on from ITV, and he was talking about there are people, <laughs> especially but sometimes domains where you're trying to do it and it's just not working and it's not going to work and that's okay. It's okay to to kind of tap out to say, hey, we're not going to do that. So I think this. Um, there, there is this little bit of a bias within the data mesh community that everybody should want to participate. Everybody should want to give their data and everybody, you know, this is the best yeah. thing. And, and that, you know, if your data is useful, you must produce. And it's like, well, you've got to get them buy, bought in. You got to do the incentivization. You've got to do all that stuff. So I think this is a really good topic. So if someone were to say, how do you think about, is this good for data mesh? Wh- whichever you want to start at the, the yeah. organization level challenge or the, the domain level, what would you, what would you go with? Uh, I think I would start to look at the company size in terms of uh, how big is the company. Uh, and of course, uh, the domain complexity. I mean, you have really simple domains, which doesn't generate a lot of data. And you have very complex domains like uh, healthcare systems and uh, financing systems and insurance and all that stuff really complex domains who generate a lot of a lot of data so I guess from my perspective um, if you're if you have a small company with uh, with a uh, simple domain I wouldn't start off doing data mesh I think I think like there's a lot of value into having a centralized team doing data I mean f- from my point of view coming from the operational side side of things, uh, not having to think about those things is really neat, right? You don't. I mean, you have a lot of other stuff you have to focus on. You have the, you have to serve the front end. You have to model all your use cases, and you have yeah, you have consistency, and you have to scale and all that stuff. You have a lot of things to think about, right? And doing, doing operational. So you really, if someone can kind of take off something which is kind of clean, which is a clean cut, that's good, right? So. So if you're coming from that side, I wouldn't I wouldn't start looking at data mesh. I think I would probably start looking at a platform. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea, or it doesn't doesn't take you a lot before it's valuable to separate me, the the one team doing the ingestion from platform thinking. But uh, besides doing that, I wouldn't like start to distribute things. It's a lot easier to I mean solve your governance model and all that stuff if you have one team. So, uh, but again, uh, that, that, that kind of beauty and, this, uh, and the simplicity of having this one team uh, kind of works only to a certain point, right? Yeah. Uh, you, have, you have things like uh, Conway's Law playing in. I mean, uh, this team is probably going to create a monolithic architecture, right? Uh, at, uh, based, on, uh, based on Conway. Um, and of course, it doesn't scale. So if your data need starts to grow, uh, things are going to look more and more complicated. Uh, you're going to have a larger and larger cognitive load on a single team, with which they have to address more and more and more domains. From and actually, they don't even own the domains, right? They're uh, they're like just men in the middle. You have the you have the wall of confusion all over again, right? So so. Um, so if your domain starts to increase or your data needs starts to increase uh, and you have a complex domain, and also if you're large, uh, then I think data mesh starts to make add value, at least, and it becomes an interesting proposition to look more into. And, and where 
a lot of people in the the data mesh space, I think, are coming at it from is that they are those smaller companies and they want to figure out how to actually effectively share their data. But I don't think that data mesh, I think data mesh is is overkill, right? You need yeah. to hammer in a nail and you're you're trying to to not just a, a sledgehammer, an actual jackhammer, right? Like something just massive that's not really built in that same way with that same concept. And so I I don't know when you should start to say, hey, those domain teams need to be involved in sharing their data. I do think it, it you know, you were kind of saying that it, it's <laughs> the more simplicity and the less that you have to think about that. I think that right now we don't have tooling to make that possible, right? So either you have just this data team that has to deal with kind of exhaust and, and that it's it's a bad situation, yeah. but where we, we could really move and that it's a light cognitive load on the domain team is, hey, you're trying to evolve your application model. Like, let's talk about what this data model is for your domain and that that data model is created by that centralized team and that it's managed and that you as a, a developer have the tooling to understand that okay, the application model has changed is, or the application model needs to change in this way. Is that going to break our data model? And there's kind of that, that small amount of back and forth to say, can we still do this without it breaking our data model, but that it doesn't really slow down the application side to, um, to continue to evolve, you know, allow that evolution. Yeah. And you also, you have to, you have to like consider What's the op- uh, what's the operational cost? I mean, what's the business consequence of allowing this to fail for a short period of time? Because if you have, um, I'm I'm going to say back in the days, since I'm really old now, but <laughs> but I'm going to say back in the days. Um, usually, uh, analytic analytic analytical data was for uh, reporting, and that that was kind of the the business consequence of having failed reports wasn't usually that big. So you could you could kind of accept that kind of uh, th- or those kind of consequences having a having an, a separate data team like um, picking up the pieces and patching after or updating their ETL jobs and stuff like that. But I think one one th- aspect we haven't talked about yet, which makes this more interesting, is that data driven companies they're starting to bridge the gap between the operational teams and the analyt- analytical side. In terms of you're starting to use analytical data to drive decisions in the operational domain, and when you start getting to that loop, uh, the business consequences of having failed failed jobs starts to increase, and that's also a very strong argument to try to find a different model than a retroactive model. And the only way you can get proactive is to put the teams who are actually doing the changes and uh, uh, making them uh, responsible for versioning and actually creating the data products. So I just wanted to throw that in there that there's this really interesting um, axis uh, in terms of what's the business criticality of having these uh, data up to speed and online all the time. Yeah, and, and I think the data folks a lot of them say okay now we have the power to to say hey uh you know application developers you now have to do all of these things and it's like well but 
you can't just throw more on their plate without no, the resourcing yeah. and, and the space to take on that additional cognitive load. And, um, you know, uh, Scott Hawkins episode, uh, he was talking about that for this to work, the incentivization, like go to their managers and not just be like, Hey, your team needs to do this, but like, let's rework your team's KPIs. If you don't have that exec level buy-in to rework the KPIs and the OKRs and things like that, it's, it's, you're going to meet a ton, ton, ton of resistance. And that was kind of an aha moment where I was like, yeah, you don't just go and say, Hey, are you bought in? Let's go do this. It's like, Hey, are you bought in? Let's enable you so that you can do this and that it's good for your team and your career to do this instead of that it's just a nice thing. And so that's really interesting because I I haven't heard that episode, but uh, all the things you mentioned now are basically things that we are um, addressing at uh, one of my clients at the moment. It's uh, I mean, you have to, this is a cultural problem. I mean, if you have, if you have a good fit for data mesh in terms of uh, domain complexity and size and maybe how you decide to use data, you, then you and, and you and you decide that okay we're going to do data mesh. Then you're going to end up with a cultural problem because all those operational guys like me, they don't want to do this. I mean, they don't have the incentive to do this uh, when you start off. So exactly like you said, you have to look at key performance indicators. You have to make you may have to make the wins for them. Like if they if they expose their data, make it available. That has to be a win for the team, not only just making a new sexy use case or solving some feature in the front end, right? Yeah. So you have to get all these incentives up and running. Uh, you have to lower their um, capacity or uh, or their uh, workload on their initial yeah. workload, and you have to enable them with resources that can actually do some of these things, uh, and also work closely with the platform team. Because I always think that uh, platform should be you have should have the minimal viable platform, and it should be driven by the abstract abstractions that you observe and the actual war stories out in the teams. So if you start doing data mesh and you start to put these uh, these uh, engineers, these data engineers into the teams, they have to start to work together with the platform team to figure out what sort of um, platform do we need to support this data mesh yeah there, there needs to be the it's not what do the data engineers want to put into production it's what 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 do the developers actually want to use right yeah. if yeah. you don't have that you're you're kind of uh not going to have good adoption so but um yeah and and um so i also think that we've kind of talked about it a little bit or we've been circling around it of like there are ways to share data that aren't data mesh, right? There are scalable yeah. ways. And that's where we need to get to for those small and, and mid-sized companies. Because if you don't have this complexity, but you do need to be able to power those those business decisions on yeah. a day-to-day basis, whether that's machine learning models or not, um, that you, we have to get to a, a framework for doing that. But, you know, I don't think it is from my conversations with Jamak. She doesn't think it is. It's not data mesh for those small to, to mid-sized companies because it's too much to take on versus, hey, we just need to align these these cultural aspects and that have that centralized team, but that the centralized team 
doesn't have to be the one that owns all of the context. They can own the context of how the data is used, but that they um, enable the uh, application developers, those teams, to easily share their data and to easily think through, hey, <laughs> are my changes going to break things and what's that going to cause? And that they understand how their data is used, but that they're also not like, you know, I talk about this analysis paralysis of if you tell application developers in most organizations currently, the way that we have tooling set up, if you tell them that they can't break their data yeah. for the downstream consumers, they can't make application schema changes because they don't know what is doing what downstream. There isn't a good way for them to understand that. And so they can't test, they can't, they just can't know. And so either they can evolve their application schema or they can't. And their job is to do the right things for the application, which is evolving the schema. Yeah. So, and and we need to get them to understand what their data model looks like. But, you know, like Flexport, they um, went and hired analytics engineers and stuck those in, in their domains. They embedded those in the domains. Most companies don't have the ability to go out and hire a whole bunch of analytics engineers. They don't have that headcount. They can't necessarily even find those people if they did. Um, yeah. And so, like, yeah, I, I think this is this is important. So, um, and also in terms of uh, organization, um, because what we kind of you touched on there in terms of uh, what one company did, right? They, they put analysts into their domains, and uh, I think uh, team structure is also a very important key player in data mesh enablement. In, as I mentioned to you uh, earlier. I think of data mesh as an extension to a service-oriented architecture or what they might popularly call microservices today. It's, uh, it's, uh, you already have cross-functional teams uh, in charge of business capabilities, and now you want to add more into those capabilities. And, and for me, that's a really uh, key thing that is really, really hard to do data mesh if you have uh, a chaotic team structure like if you're basically doing all department stuff and you have all this uh or you, ha you have a low sense of cross-functional teams and all that stuff it really becomes hard to throw data mesh into that mix so even if you have a complex domain and all the other drivers and incentives um ready and lined up you have to take into consideration that um, you can't just throw data mesh at it. You have you have to start if you want to solve this. You have to start looking at how you organize um, everything. Yeah, yeah. Tin Ha had a, a a great episode, and and he had put out an article on ten reasons you or ten you know signs or whatever you aren't ready for data mesh, and it's it's yeah. that of you know. Jamak has talked about this. I've talked about this of there is prep work that needs to be done, right? You, you can't, it, it's, you can't just throw something that has this much of collaborative requirements, right? Data mesh is so much about communication and collaboration. And if you don't have an organization that is set up for that collaboration, yeah, yeah that's your pre-work, that's your homework. That's the thing yeah. you have to do that's that's your your stretching and your training before you're getting out on the field. Otherwise, you're going out there and you're you're going to pull a, a you know a hamstring pretty 
pretty dang quick, right? <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's not going to go well if you're not, you're not doing that. So um, before we jump into that, that kind of team structure aspect, um, so we talked about kind of company size and domain complexity. Like, do you have good markers for somebody to really, I mean, I think it's one of those where if people have the, the company size and the, or the organization size, you know, if you're, um, you know, a governmental organization or whatever, but, um, that if they're in that boat, they know it, but there are a lot of people who think they're in that boat and they think that, um, the, the problem is the centralization when the problem is definitely not the centralization yet, if they had a better kind of structure. So do you have indicators or markers that you would look for, um, for somebody being like that data mesh is the fit to do now? Yeah. Um, yeah, probably I would, uh, gather some data on like, uh, how many data sets are you producing today? I mean, how many, how many, uh, domains, uh, is uh, within the central uh, ingestion team today. Uh, what's their lead time? Um, and uh, how are they serving new data needs? I mean, a lot of those uh, old, uh, or sorry, I shouldn't say old, that sounds very negative, but a lot of those centralized platforms uh, are focused around uh, Tableau reporting and like business reporting and not necessarily ready to take on machine learning requirements and kind of new data requirements. So I would also look at how does your team respond to new requirements and how do they understand them? Do they Does their models fit with the machine learning requirements? Because uh, machine learning requirements is something different than reporting. I mean... Uh, the most complex uh, historization models I've been involved with has something like four date dimensions. Uh, like you have machine learning engineers that want to be able to recre- recreate a data set as it was in any point in time. And uh, and, uh, and that's kind of the most complex things. So yeah, they, uh, the number of uh, data sets, uh, their lead time, uh, how are they responding to... Uh, to new data, uh, and uh, and also I also think it's really interesting to observe the um, how the collaboration, the current collaboration with the operational team is or operational teams are, because um, I mean, do you have a lot of dark data? Uh, what's the quality of your data? Is it like uh, just oh by the way, can you set up a new integration and you're basically just doing raw ingestion and and the analysts are not really uh, taking that data or they, they can't really use that data because it's poor quality. It's not like that it's difficult to understand from a semantical point of view. It's, I mean, how close it is, is it to a data product? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of aspects you can look at, which kind of sums up to like, uh, is your current um, analytical setup uh, matching your requirements, right? Is, is is it working? Is it serving yeah, your needs? And, yeah, is it working? Are you happy? <laughs> and, well, and and nobody's ever happy, right? Like yeah, even yeah. <laughs> like, but how acute is the pain? Like how yeah. strong is this pain? Uh, Angela Martelli kind of talked about this in his episode about proving out 
that you have a problem. And so, you know, when you think about, okay, what, what is the, the amount of time lead time needed to make a change in your data warehouse? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like six to eight weeks in a lot of cases. And so by the time you've made that change, the change is kind of irrelevant because you have to make the next change. And so like you need that, that flexibility and, and, you know, everybody wants everything to be as usable as possible, but, and data mesh is trying to kind of flip that switch a little bit about trying to figure out how we get to usable at the whole enterprise level, Mm. which is what the data warehouse is focused on, but that you don't chop off all the context and the actual meaning and, and everything that goes into doing that centralized data warehouse. Cause you're just like, I have to fit, fit it into this box or into this cookie cutter approach. And so, you know, I'm throwing out 90% of the dough because I, I just have to have it fit this cookie cutter and it doesn't matter what the dough was around that, that cookie cutter. So, okay. I, I think those are, are really good ones. I think I also forgotten to mention the last one, just to reiterate something I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Uh, if you're doing, if you're using data, like if you're doing machine learning for operational cases, I don't see how a centralized team doing ETLs after the fact are going to get anything closer than, uh, oh, by the way, are we going to fix it the next day? Or we have to coordinate verbally between teams, which is like the bad perfume of agile i guess that you have to if you have forced coordination between teams then you're not in a good place so so i think uh data mesh is at least a solution to doing proactive changes they you introduce versioning from the origin right so i I really can't see how you can solve that if you have business cases which are reliant on having analytical data sets available and and up to speed yeah, and I think that ends up being one of those things that I, I think you're 100% correct. And I think it's something where people misinterpret it and push back on because they go, oh, so you're saying that data mesh is serving the ML use case directly. And it's like, no, but it, it gets you in the mode of understanding that you have to keep this data, like you said, kind of that proactive change, but that you understand and you you take the time to figure out what is this change going to what what is this change going to cause for everybody else right yeah. that that yeah. i'm not in my silo i'm not just getting to do whatever i want and it doesn't have a, any effect on on the greater organization and yeah. so you create the ability to create these data sets to create machine learning models and then you you might be serving those not directly from the mesh for like the kind of live operational yeah, use yeah. case, but you've learned how to to deal with that stuff and you've learned how to do that and that you have to take care to this and that you're, um, so you've built that muscle up and that you can add additional things and, and rework ML models much more quickly because people aren't going and saying, hey, I want this data. And then they look at the data and they go, well, this wasn't in exactly how I wanted it, or I didn't get what I thought I wanted. And that you yeah. don't have that ability to go out there and actually kind of what I call data spelunking of just kind of going out there and finding yeah. some, some data and going, what is this? Is this useful? And being able yeah. to figure out, is this useful? Was this a one-off generated thing, you know, 
from somebody who left and nobody knows what it really is or what it really means or, you know, the quality level and things like that. So. And also, I think you kind of, you kind of kick off the discussion, right? I mean, you kind of, when you tear down the silos and you, and these teams, they have to start thinking about each other as customers. I mean, operational teams suddenly have analytical customers. And then, I mean, that starts a really interesting discussion because then you have to start the discussing what kind of data, okay, what kind of data do you guys have? Uh, you can start exploring semantics. You can start collaborating in another fashion in terms of just having this wall of confusion, right? You're just shifting it over and then someone else is working on it. So I, I really like the engagement that data mesh brings to the table and it kind of creates new new customers to the operational teams. Yeah. And well, and, and how do you think about, you know, kind of wrapping that back into the team structure conversation? Yeah. How do you think about actually getting that buy-in from people like on the, on the operational side, on those developers, you know, let's say you can get them to rework the KPIs. The team still gets to kind of prioritize what they want to prioritize. So even if there's something from on high, they yeah. don't get to you know, it doesn't mean that you're going to get what you want. It means that you might get something that that conforms to a ticket, yeah. but it's not <laughs> it's the actual <laughs> what what you actually want out of it until, you know, you've put in 65 tickets and it's been reprioritized and prioritized across three years. So, like, yeah. how do you get how do you get people like yourself bought in that this is good and useful and it's something they should do is that the career angle is that the um it's good for the company and you you kind of get that is it just like getting the consumers and the producers in the same room there's just so many different things that have come up but like how do you think about getting those people actually bought in yeah i think um you have to um you have to listen to them first i mean um there's going to be uh, an increased cognitive load on that team. And yeah, you can have data engineers and, and build up the team with more roles, but you're also going to do some, a few things that's probably going to make, be more painful for the team. First of all, who's going to uh, do data presentation? I mean, who's going to do the backlog grooming for the data stuff? I mean, it usually ends up with the product owner, right? You don't want to have two product owners managing the same team. So, or product manager, I don't know what the correct term is, but the guy or girl doing the priorities, right? You want one of them. So that person is going to get more work, I think. And also, you, you can't really get away from the fact that the operational guys and girls, they have to start thinking about how their data changes are going to affect these products they're creating. So you'll have, you're going to carry, either if you start putting other resources into the team, you're going to have to address the fact that they're going to get more things uh, they have they get more things that I have to do and think about and also uh, so I think you have to sit down with the team and, and start thinking uh, asking the questions how are we going to a- address this extra uh, extra cognitive load I mean uh, you don't want to have uh, daily scrums with 15 people right you uh, everyone's been there and there's it's an absolute nightmare and especially when you start getting these stand-ups where only the information which is passed on in the standup is only relevant for part of the team, right? So I think you have to. I don't have a uh, any strong opinion on like the uh, if they do team of teams or if they do like uh, I mean how they mix and match this thing to to make it work. But I 
I think the the point is that you have to get them to accept that beyond the the broader team boundary, these things are going to be versions. I, I don't care how you guys and girls are going to solve it within this boundary. You can do teams of teams. You can do one big team. I don't care. That's up to you guys to solve, to figure out. But you're not going to deploy anything into production or any or any anything continuous and break your data products. That's what you have to solve. So I think you have to give them some autonomy in terms of uh, letting them uh, address things that that's going to be painful for them in terms of team size, and you have to give them extra resources. Uh, you have to reshape the business so that uh, that you get common goals on top. You can't have people that's only chairing for customer experience, right? In the in the UI and the and the these data needs that are being uh, uh, put on the team, they they're just going to go into the backlog and no one really cares. Or there's there's this data guy up on the side who really wants them to do it, but no one really uh, focuses on it. So you have to reshape the requirements that meet the team. Um, and I, and I also think you need a bit of a whip, a whip. <laughs> in terms of you. Uh, people don't like to change. I mean, there's a, we have this natural resilience towards doing new stuff. Uh, so so you also have to make put some hard requirements in there and say, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, but uh, this, um, this is for the better good of our business. So you, we're going to do this. We're going to solve this. And you just have to get on board. And you can give me feedback on how you, uh, what you need, but you, but you can't opt out. You can't jump ship, right? So there has to be some hard boundaries, and then you have to uh, um, use their competence so they can shape uh, their team solutions in the best way they see fit. Yeah, and, and uh, when Jessica Kerr or Jessatron was on, she was talking about she she kind of hates the word autonomy versus agency because autonomy yeah. means you go figure it out versus agency is like you have the the rights and the permission to choose how you want, but we're going to help you with it. And and it's like it it becomes this kind of semantical debate around specific wording. But I think that's that's an approach that seems to be working a little bit better. But I, I agree with you. Um, Scott Hawkins also talked about um, as a team that's trying to drive the data mesh that you can opt out of working with teams if they're being just too painful or, or whatever. But I agree with you that you don't allow anybody to just say, oh, we're not going to, we're not going to do this, yeah. but you have to, to work with them to figure out why don't they want to do this or what, what is the really big um, issue with this? And, and I think um, a lot of the pushback that I've seen is because Data people and uh, the application people just speak such different languages. And so, you know, the number of times that data people talk about pipelines and how crucial pipelines are, it's not the way most application developers think. They don't think of a pipeline. They think of, okay, this is a kind of a job to be done. And it's like this thing does some some data East type stuff, but it's not that I set up a pipeline that does X and Y and Z, you know, that does these transformations in these steps with this. It's like, well, yeah, you just set up the thing to do the thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, um, 
you know, talking about something like DBT or whatever, yeah, yeah. data people love talking about that, but the application software engineers, they're just like, what, what is this? Why do I care? What, yeah. what is this going to let me do? So, yeah. And also, I, I really, one thing I find really interesting when working with data engineers versus programmers is that um, we all tend to have the golden hammer, right? I mean, <laughs> the first uh, first uh, ingestion ETL thing I ever did, uh, do you, well, if you had to make a guess, do you think I, A, wrote it in code, or B, used uh, uh, something like Airflow? Well, I mean, I think everybody starts trying to write it in code and then yeah. goes, oh, this yeah. is this was more and more complicated every day. And so I'm trying yeah, to, but, uh, to I mean, cover uh, 17 use cases and it, it doesn't work. So yeah. I'll find something. But yeah, yes, but, to start, but, uh, you do code. Yes, I, I didn't I didn't rewrite Airflow. I mean, I'm, I'm too old to do that kind of painful stuff. But I kind of, I, I, I attacked the problem from a, uh, a coding perspective. I mean, I we had a... We had data, we had the low quality, so it needed to be um, cleaned up. And uh, we had to do a lot of, uh, apply a lot of heuristics to uh, to uh, block bad data and do all that stuff. And that's actually, that's kind of when code shines. Those things are kind of good with code. Uh, so so I was kind of in luck with doing uh, a, an ingestion uh, of an external data set in code. But I'm also, I also got this aha moment that kind of, hmm, my background makes me consider code all the time. While if I go talk to data engineers and you ask them about a problem, if they start creating something that looks like a something you would code in a service and drop in a container and deploy, they're automatically thinking about uh, directed uh, asynchronic graphs and ETL jobs and all that stuff. So our backgrounds is like your background really influences what you look at first. And, and some things are really good with ETL jobs. And something are really good in code, and I hope we can get the discussion going in terms of uh, having a more uh, neutral assessment as to which tools we apply for both problems, or that those ETL jobs are in code, because that's yeah. that's the thing that's scalable, that's the thing that's reviewable, that's the the whole issue with so much of this stuff. I, I talk about the trapped metadata problem, but like that's yeah. even that's even how you think about. Um, transformations and things like that is that they're trapped in these different systems and people can't review them or understand them or, or figure out what's what's going on here. So you could kick off an ETL job. You know, this is what orchestration does. It's, yep. it's fine to, to, to have that, but the coding around it needs to be there. So that way people, yep. it's not, oh, this one person writes with this weird, weird format and nobody can figure out what it means. And so if they leave, we're all screwed. Um, you know, I, I would say I was really bad about this in my former days when I was doing, you know, kind of financial analysis type stuff. There was one, um, thing that I, I wrote that had, I think, um, 32 V lookup statements embedded in one cell. And so it worked perfectly well. Uh, it was very, very useful, but VLOOKUPs are also very fragile and things like that. And so it's like, yes, if I'm the one that's doing this and I had to write very, very specific documentation on how to, here's how you insert a new thing and here's how you make sure that you want to insert it in the middle of this grouping so the grouping will still be there and 
um, because otherwise you're just not going to include this in in the broader group of these you know 15 different subcategories and it just it, it makes it so that if you're doing these very special one-off type things you're capable of doing it potentially you know there's all the times where people come and look at code and go I don't know what what this is. And I wrote it yesterday. I have no idea what this does. How does this work? So, um, yeah. yeah. And, and how, how have you found bridging that language gap works? A lot of people have said, just get people in the room together, but you know, that's a one-off potentially of a meeting versus a collaboration going forward. So how have you found that, that, that kind of collaboration can be sticky? Yeah, um, uh, we haven't gotten to that point yet. <laughs> so we're kind of in those meeting, uh, those meeting sessions, and kind of uh, the uh, the cultural shift. So uh, I'll have to tell you about that uh, some other time. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I just kind of see, I see the things. I mean, I, I I've been on the other side so often, so I kind of recognize and I I I acknowledge what. Uh, what they're um, um, what they're fighting, or my, I mean, what their concerns are, right? So you basically, uh, yeah, I th- I th- you just have to work with the tools that I mentioned uh, earlier, and um, we'll take it from there. Yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah. I think that empathy angle is is important yeah. to go in yeah. and say this person's not trying to break all the stuff, even if yeah. they if their actions are breaking it, they're not the one that's breaking it. It's that that we haven't set up. It's you know, kind of the blameless postmortem and, you know, something breaks at, at Amazon and it's not the person who broke its fault. It's the fact that there wasn't enough safeguards to prevent that yeah. breakage. We need to yeah. build in those safeguards and, and figure that out and, and just yeah. have empathy that it's not somebody's, you know, the number of times that I've seen a story of, of an intern going in and dropping the production database. And it was like, why did you give the intern <laughs> root access to the production database and there's no safeguard to go, did you really mean to just drop the entire database? Like, what are you doing? That That is not that person's fault that they, yeah. you know, you, you fat finger something or, or you're, you think that you're in test and you're, you're in prod and that it goes, no, no, no. Like, did you really mean to do this? Yeah. But uh, one thing I'm, uh, uh, which I think is really interesting, is that you have um, we talked about teams and organizations that's uh, and, and things you have to solve in order to be uh, enabled for data mesh. But I also think it's really interesting to look at uh, what kind of systems um, does your organization provide. I mean, uh, the perfect fit for me would be a operational team that's uh, master of their own domain right they're 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 modeling the system they own the databases they know every column they 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 know every aspect of the system that's kind of the the perfect fit right in terms of team and technology then you have teams working on top of systems they the companies bought right and then it's kind of then it com- becomes a bit more complicated, or even worse. Maybe it's a it's a software as a service um, solution, which you don't even know how the database looks, and you're you're getting data. You can you can support getting some data out of it, but it's kind of you're not you're not masters of the database and how how it looks and all that stuff. And then you have the worst category, which are data you buy from other companies, right? <laughs> 
And uh, so, so I think there's like these three different, at least three different categories of uh, teams and systems. And there's some work really well, and others kind of, yeah, I don't really feel that DataMess answers the question of uh, who who does all the heavy lifting if you basically buy a data set from an external source and uh, you have to be the one shaping it into uh, data products for the entire organization, uh, which is kind of the approach we have taken where we kind of said, you're it, right? So if you're, if you're, if you're going to buy a data set, an external data set, we have said, congratulations, you bought this. Now you have the honor of exposing it to the rest of the organization. So if you're, if you're working for a team that's kind of buying a lot of data, <laughs> you're going to get a lot of jobs owning up to that. So I kind of feel that's not a perfect solution, and it, but it kind of takes at least a job off the central team. But I don't know if you've heard about other strategies towards that kind of problems. I mean, I've, I've seen this. So I was at a, a company that did kind of a rather large reorg and then did like seven subsequent reorgs in the next uh, uh, six to nine months or whatever. Um, there was one, one person who was just really, really gung ho and they'd been previously in support and they were now as, as a software developer and they were really gung ho and they really knew where a lot of the issues were. And so I think they had eight different, uh, managers across seven months and he was doing great, great work, but he was, cause he would jump in and be like, I'm going to fix this thing. And he, he would get like 80% done and then somebody else would pull him into something that was urgent and stuff. But, um, you know, what, what happened was that you kept having these orphaned systems where the person who had created it would, would, uh, leave or would, uh, kind of disavow themselves from it and that it would get pushed under a new team and it just never really worked. And, and some of that is you have to really, really encourage very strong documentation. But, um, I mean, I think if you're buying data, I don't understand the concept of not going to the producer, you know, of that data and going, here's how you're going to produce data to me. Right. Yeah. How do you not have that, that power? It's, it's, it's somebody who is your, you're the customer and you're saying. I totally agree. But if you knew how many bad companies who sell data that exists out there, you would be amazed. I mean, Data quality is a big thing, even if you're buying data from professional data for companies living off that, delivering data. So uh, cleaning data, blocking data from ingestion and and basically sanitizing the models and building your own. I I would love to go to those companies and say, hey, uh, I'm the customer. Give me this and this and this. But uh, uh, until that day comes, we have to do some trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah. Those companies just confuse me that they just don't have usable APIs and things. It's like, how, how are you not thinking about, like, it's kind of like you're a data producer and you're just producing into the void and going, who wants to buy it versus like, I'm going to have a conversation with my consumers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so we talked, uh, you know, in and around team structures, but is there anything else that you wanted to cover kind of on team structures or? I think uh, I think we pretty much covered it. If you don't okay. uh, have any ideas, yeah. Well, and and you had wanted to also talk about kind of the um, generally the elephant in the room in data mesh, which is the federated computational governance that 
it's yeah. it's a massive topic. I, I hate governance um, simply because governance shouldn't be a single topic, right? It's, yeah. it's it's fifteen subtopics all rolled up underneath each other, and then when you think about in data mesh, it's not just the kind of gatekeeper role. It's not that centralized governance that everything flows through. It's it's that centralized governance as the enabler for teams to handle their own stuff. And yep. then um, you add in the, the computational aspect of that governance of adding policy to the data and flowing that policy with the data, as well as the governance around how data is created so that you manage the um, complexities of cost management to make sure that you're not just saying, oh, we're going to produce this data and, and it doesn't matter what it costs because it obviously does. There's an investment to be had for the return. So yeah. um, it just becomes this big morass. And, and I think it's um, it's a big, big pain point for a lot of people to, to start heading down that path. And, and my kind of proof of concept of advice is, is kind of CYA, which um, cover your but we'll call it uh, just so that I can maintain the non-explicit uh, thing on, on the podcast. But um, but like it is such a, a difficult topic of about how much do you focus on value max maximization versus you know how much you have to put in the right amount of effort to make sure you don't get yourself into trouble. And if you inform your your teams as to Hey, here, here are dragons. Let me know when you're headed down that path towards dragons and we'll team together and that it's not, Hey, I want access to this data. What is this data? It's like, okay, this person wants access. I'm not sure because of X or Y or Z, what are your thoughts? And that there's like a very specific ask instead of this person wants access, yay or nay, that there's like more of that specific communication back and forth. But, you know, I've just said a whole lot of things at you uh, yeah, about yeah. governance, but like, where do you think, where, where are you uh, not as happy with what's been put out there? Or where, where do you think that we need more focus on or what, what's, what's kind of yeah. your big uh, issue with kind of that federated computational governance angle? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, my, uh, my issue with it is that I think we have to simplify stuff because I, we have we tend to forget that um, uh, the developers are a very very large mass of uh, different people with different skills, and I've seen this kind of academic story being played out before. I mean, you can you can read the I think his name was Eric Evans. He wrote a book on domain driven design. Yeah, uh, and yeah. Um, and it's kind of. Uh, it's, it's a, a bit too academic so that kind of you end up with a lot of dev- developers missing like key points like an aggregate is actually a protection of invariant and use cases. It's not a classification of an entity. I mean, that's one of the most important parts of domain-driven design. And if you make things too complex, people just kind of forget those problems and they end up with doing the wrong thing. And i also seen it with service-oriented architecture where there was this big debate for like 10 15 years about what does it mean and there was i mean it it went from people talking about technology oh it's web services right to people talking about concepts and like udi dahan was one of the main advocates of the thing which i mean is data mesh today 
and uh, and and then they kind of gave up and like said, okay, we're never going to agree what service-oriented architecture is. So we're going to create this new word. We're going to call it microservices, and we're going to describe a few aspects, which is more to the point. So I guess what I'm a bit concerned is that if we start throwing around really, really, really complex stuff like computational federated governance, there's a big risk that you're going to end up with a lot of enforcers that's going to stake their claim and say that, yeah, we know data mesh, but they really don't know what they're talking about, right? I mean, it gets too complex. So we have to simplify things and and get more into the practical. uh, We have to bridge the gap between the... uh, It's next two very, very excellent articles, but they need more examples in terms of what does this mean uh, in a more simplified language, I guess. Yeah, decompose, 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 because I think um, exactly what you're talking about and, and what I mentioned is that, you know, Governance is really, to me, it's like 15, 17 subtopics. And yeah. so uh, it it, it kind of had to be under one pillar because people were, you know, were asking Jamac about, okay, but how do we do governance? How do we do governance? And, and but there are a lot of aspects to this. And yeah. Mohammed um, Syed was, was on recently on uh, his episode on, on governance. And I'm going to be digging a lot deeper into it um, with a lot of, of folks coming up. But it's a big challenge simply because the way that we've done governance in the past has been at the very macro organizational level type of, of thing. And we need to decompose governance to be at the micro level around each data product in and of itself. And within that, we need to make it so developers have the ease to go, okay, I'm going to mark this as PII or potentially PII and whatever. And then the data product owner can you know, say, okay, here's our masking rules around it. And there can be centralized masking rules that then can be click button applied, right? And oh, say, yeah. here, here is that enablement, right? And yeah. it's the same thing when you think about interoperability of we need those centralized standards from yeah. the, the governance team to push that out. And the, the teams can say, okay, I, you know, one thing we don't want to head down with data mesh is just data silos everywhere. But it's yeah. fine to me to have a data product that isn't interoperable with anything else, or or at least a table within a data set that isn't interoperable because it is of value in and of itself. And so you don't have to say everything has to be interoperable with everything else, because then that that again breaks the the ability to maximize your context. And so yeah. local maximization versus global maximization of value of I don't want to fully maximize the value of every single data product because if I'm doing that, then the global maximum of of my data goes down significantly because there's not that interoperability between domains. We start to think about ML and, and pulling things in from lots of different places. But what what I've been talking about as well is to do governance right in data mesh, you need to expose the concepts and the decision making to the domains. And and Mohammed said this really well of to to federate governance, you need to have or to just do data governance in general, you need to have informed governors. So if you're federating governance, you need to inform those governors and you need to enable them to do their job around governance 
easily. And that's not exposing the tools and, you know, having a, a, a developer have to learn all of the AMI rules or whatever and, and stay up to, to date on those, but that there is kind of a checklist of here's what we're trying to accomplish. Hey, central team, here's what we're trying to accomplish. Did we do it? Or, mm-hmm. you know, did you expose this to us in a, it, it, you know, it's the same thing with self-serve, right? You're not exposing yeah. DBT to folks, you're exposing them the ability to write their code. Um, there's a company called the Maroxa that's, that's I think, doing some interesting stuff around this about how they're exposing the creation and orchestration of, of pipelines and things like that, but in software developer workflows and, and language. And mm-hmm. that you think about who's using this and why, and that you you don't say everybody has to know everything about everything versus people aren't dumb, right? You don't hire dumb people. I mean, we all sometimes make those hiring mistakes, but we won't go down that route. But, um, but you know, we have to trust these people that they're going to make good decisions and, and, and do right and, and that, but we have to enable them to be able to actually make those decisions. And so yeah. much easier said than done. And, and exactly what you said of like, Let's get super specific. Oh, like let's get those people talking about. It's kind of the same thing with data discovery, where data discovery is just this huge topic to me because it's like, can I find the data? Well, what does find mean? Like, is it okay? I can find that there is data here, but can I understand what it is? Can I get access to it? Can I, you know, actually use it? Can is, you know, and and people start to talk way too much, I think, about performance. And I, I really hate the idea of people talking way too much about performance, but it does matter relative to this. And, you know, somebody was asking, um, I think on Twitter about the, how do you do, like, how do you think about data products in different countries and doing like a cross country query? Do you, do you copy that same data everywhere around? And so that you've got that kind of central data product, and then you've got all the other places where they are copies and that that copy is, you know, the speed of light. So whoop-de-doo, it's not that that difficult to keep that updated. But so that way people can do easy, quick queries or, you know, and then that starts to get into the governance too of data sovereignty issues. And like, I mean, it, it just ends up being very, very complicated. And so yeah. where I, I tell people is to not get that bogged down. You, 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 again, you cover your butt right? You make sure you're not putting yourself into a really bad spot and you work towards those things and you work towards, Hey, it's the same thing with building the platform. You you think about, can we have 80% coverage so that this is the easy and the right path? And then we deal with the other 20% when we have to, but we're not trying to cover everything, but we're also not saying you go deal with it, right? Because if it's, you go deal with it, you're, you're, it's way too much toil. It's way too much repetition of work. So, um, well, it was really uh, interesting what you when you gave the example about masking, because I really never thought about masking as a governance, like a centralized governance feature. I mean, I always thought that if you have a um, if you have a team that's um, uh, experts on a domain and they have sensitive data it's like within their domain expertise to do masking and that kind of things to because they know their data, right? 
So it, it was really interesting to like hear that you 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 thought about that uh, from a governance perspective, like you could actually provide that kind of features to the team, right? Yeah, you, you you're putting in your columns and you just have a <laughs> is this PII check, yeah, right? Like yeah. that column has PII in it. Okay, yeah. boom, it's masked, yeah. and then you can start to say, do you want to create? Uh, you know, auto rules so people can access this automatically, but like access by default, you have to have that masking and and you don't yeah. want to have, okay, uh, I'm putting out my first iteration of this data product. Okay. There's this stuff in there that could be useful, but like, I'm going to mask these, these eight columns. And then you go out and you talk to people and none of those eight columns get used okay, I can remove that. Like, this is awesome. I don't even have to deal with this stuff and I can have this access by default. But like, it's all about what 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 can we automate from a toil perspective so that somebody doesn't have to create that, that masking and that, and that there is a common user experience. I go yeah. from this product to this product and I want to create, I want to request access to these masked columns. Mm. I don't want to have to learn that this person created this crazy UX for, for how they do this. And it's totally, you know, my UX is totally different than your UX is totally different than, you know, Sally's UX. And so like it, it becomes that, that empathy for the user as well. And so how do we do that? Oh, yeah. like it's, it's something that it's, far easier said than done. And, and it's not something that I came up with. It's the conversations that I've had that people say this stuff. But Yeah, because this is like, uh, I mean, governance to me has been like uh, putting up a, a confluence page and describing, oh, by the way, you have to, <laughs> you have to name your stuff like this and this, and you have to uh, adhere to these date standards and you have to use ISO 8602 uh, for dates and all that stuff. And basically just uh, describing formatting and stuff like that. And um, then I kind of, um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about um, uh, how can you do security? Like how can you, how can you have a centralized security model which you can uh, enforce locally so that you can have this centralized concept but you can have team ownership and team appliance and that kind of stuff so you don't end up with having a platform team doing data security on all the data sets for all the teams because then you're basically putting business capabilities back into the platform team again so i mean and that's kind of just an example of things i've been thinking and grappling with and you're kind of coming from a completely different angle so i just love it <laughs> well but and and there are tools that are doing that like okara muta are all trying to to do that but it's exactly what you what you talked about as well of that's not their domain. They don't know what that data really is. So they don't know, okay, yes, I shouldn't just give everyone access to the email column. That's that's not good. Unless it's an in, you know, it's internal folks and people need it for uh, you know, creating a mailing list or whatever. But yeah. like, you know, that's PII. That's not good to expose. But there's all sorts of things, you know, uh I had uh, somebody on talking about kind of in the medical field that there are things that you can back into who is the person that this is about if you have like just four or five attributes. In the US, yeah. um, if you have somebody's date of birth and their zip code, I think are the only two things. And it might even be like birthday and not even the year, but I think it's date of birth and their zip code. You have 84% coverage of 
uh, who this person is. or so, It's something insane where you can back into who is this exact person. I think there might be a third one of like their first name or something like that. But like it's it's just you're able to back into that PII and that that's highly regulated um, of, of figuring out who exactly this is about from from those things. So um, it's uh, it's pretty crazy what where you've got to have that that training and you've got to enable them to do it. But you've got to make it so that it's not toil work, right? Like the more that people have to do repetitive, dumb stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. Like building masking is is rep- it's a solved problem don't resolve it <laughs> yeah <laughs> but how are we going to do that in terms of i mean you, um, we talked a lot about data sets but you can have data products being something entirely different right you can have um, you can have streams you can have apis maybe you're doing data products as an api as well and then then i think it becomes interesting because uh, if you have a centralized um, pipeline which you kind of supports masking which you can publish your data sets to and it goes through some sort of process which does all those things uh what about a data api which kind of which comes from maybe you're hosting it just by uh, besides your other apis the teams are like they have a team you have an api for your front-end solutions and you have uh, integration apis and by the way here is my data api the same team right so i mean those kind of solutions for doing masking and all is uh um yeah, I'm curious because you all. I'm curious as to how that works cross technology. Yeah, right? I'm trying to get the idea of um, kind of a API gateway for data, right? Because data APIs are different, and they're they're very yeah. different. And yeah. um, a lot of people who are like, "What an API is an API," is, and it's like, no, an API for for one side is not the same as an API for the other. But like that, we can make those extensible. And and again, that that common user experience is also part of the governance uh, mm-hmm. umbrella of make it so that people can, you know, uh, Zalando, uh, Max Schultz has talked about this, but they have all of their stuff is basically stored in S3 buckets and accessed via APIs. And so you have to have that those same kind of APIs and exactly what you talked about of, hey, here's the extensible API. We're going to create this and that you can do these things on top of it. And here's how you do X and Y and Z. And those are the common things that you need to do of, of access and um, you know, also moving the with the policies with the data and things like that. So I don't think we're we're there yet. I think it's something that some companies are are doing uh, pretty good work there, but I think it it is still also all custom built, and we need more people sharing. Kind of, hey, here's this thing that we're trying, and or here's this thing that we tried and it didn't work, and so here's this yeah, thing that yeah. we got to that did work. So yeah. like those those types of things. So um. Yeah. But uh, so we're, we're, we're well past an hour now. So um, this has been awesome. So I, I really, really appreciate it. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover that we could, you know, touch on for a minute or two? Or are you ready to? 
Uh, I think uh, I'm. Uh, I have a thousand more questions and things. So I think if we just start, we're gonna sit here for two or three hours. So <laughs> maybe we can just talk some other time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that sounds great. So, um, so Marius, this is, this has been really great. Where can people find you uh, online if they want to continue the conversation? And what what do you want people reaching out to you about? Whether that's to ask you questions or to tell you what they're doing or or things like that. Yeah, uh, I, I basically love talking about anything. I mean, um, I love sharing uh, the fact that we don't have all the answers and that we can yeah. discuss uh, different problems we, that we have. Uh, so uh, it can be anything from uh, people having uh, something they, they want to pair it with someone and basically just to, to discuss some problems or maybe they have some sort of solution to something that we have addressed in this, uh, in this talk. So that, it can be anything, yeah. Okay. And and best place to, to get in touch with you is LinkedIn or? Yeah, probably LinkedIn. Yeah. Or uh, yeah, I also um, I also do. I, I regularly write a few posts on, if people want to look at more about my technical stuff, I do some writing on Medium. So okay. I uh, so I do some rants on, uh, on the things that I figure out. When, yeah. And some of them are probably re- relevant. So. <laughs> as, as always, I'll, I'll drop those links in, in the show notes. So, but uh, Marius, this was this was a really great conversation. I think it'll be helpful for a lot of folks. So, yeah, thank you so much for your time, and thanks everybody for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Marius Inger, who is a developer turned senior consultant at the extremely Norwegian named com- company Nurkafrit AS. Or links to his LinkedIn and Medium are in the show notes as per usual. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.